Okay, we come to our reading, which is from Exodus, chapter 20, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 21. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord, God, the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not cover your neighbour's house. You shall not cover your neighbour's wife, or his male or female servant, or, or his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has, not, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So let's pray for Nick as he comes to expand that message for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true and whole and all that we need to live our lives. And we pray for Nick as he comes to unpick this and unpack this for us. Uh, unpack the message that we need to live by today. Uh, and Lord, just be with Nick as he speaks. Amen. Thanks, Mark. Morning, Zoomers. Hope you can see me over there. I've, I've changed the colour, not this title slide, but I've changed the colour on the slides slightly. I think they were a bit illegible um, last week. So last week we talked about Christian ethics. We're starting about understanding how do we understand the Old Testament and how does it, um, how do we make use of it in a New Testament era. Yes, there are, there are sermon notes um, around and about on the windowsills or some down the front. And this, the words in red on the screen are in the word search. So we could say that rules define relationships. I think if we thought about that for a while, you would find that fairly convincing. I don't think uh, 
you would find that hard to believe. From marriage, to football teams, to employment, to tenancy, to charitable giving, the rules define the relationships even if they're not written down. But this little book, Jen Wilkin, and I will refer to her quite a lot as we go along. It's one of those books I was saying to Mark, it's so frustrating because it's so cogent and well-written that you just want to come and read the book on a Sunday morning. Um, get it for yourself. Uh, we've gone through 10 copies. Here are 10 copies more. She says this. So is Christianity about rules or is it about relationship? Christian faith is absolutely about relationship. But while that faith is personal, it is also communal. We are saved into special relationship with God and thereby into special relationship with other believers. Christianity is about relationship with God and others. And because this statement is true, Christianity is also unapologetically about rules. For rules show us how to live in those relationships. Rather than threaten relationship, rules enable it. Rules enable relationships. Is that true? That's what I want us to investigate this morning in the context of the Ten Commandments. But first, let's take a, a step back. We can, we're perhaps convinced that rules define relationship. You may be open to the persuasion that rules enable relationships, but where do, rules, uh, where do relationships start? What do relationships start with? When do they start and, and when do the rules kick in? And this is just my reflection. This is not uh, out of the Bible, but it seems to me that relationships start out of love or need, primarily, out of love or need. And the boundary is not always clear. Because some things you think you need are actually only really things that you want. You want a romantic relationship. You want to be in love. You don't want to be on your own. You find a partner. Ideally, a marriage comes into play and you make a marriage contract. And it enshrines exclusivity, forsaking all others. Equality, all that I have I share with you. And other-centeredness, I promise to, to love, comfort, honour and protect. Or you want to play with the local amateur football team. You have to pay your subs. That's a rule, otherwise there's no money to, to book the court, yeah, um, the pitch. You have to play by association football rules. You have to wear the team colours. You have to turn up to practices. You want to do it. It's fun. You enjoy it. The rules enable the relationship. Or you need a roof over your head, so you enter into a tenancy agreement. Or you enter into a mortgage arrangement. And it strikes me that the more the relationship is one of need, again, this is just my reflection, the more the relationship is one of need, the earlier the rules kick in. So the rules define the relationship. This is marriage. This is Man United, or perhaps I should have said this is Man City, in your five-a-side team, you wish, okay? And this is a mortgage. But the rules also, they enable the relationship. Exclusivity protects and enables uh, a marriage of two people. The rules of football enable the team to play effectively and the, the commands of the coach mean they're all on board with the same strategy. The mortgage arrangement fixes the interest rate so they don't, charges don't go up and down or whatever it is and the payout clauses. So it seems to me relationships start with love or need and 
for us and for Israel, relationships start with both. They start actually with rescue. With a rescue. And so you notice as we read in our reading this morning, it says God spoke all these words. God spoke all these words. It, uh, it doesn't call them commandments. It calls them God spoke all these words. And the first thing is kind of like a little tiny, little tiny preface. God spoke all these words, and the first thing he says in these ten words is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So the Ten Commandments, they start with a little preface, a little reminder of rescue. Up to this point, um, the people of Israel have just been Abraham's big family. They were, Abraham's, uh, they were Jacob's family. And when they went into Egypt, because they needed to do so, uh, because Joseph was there and he'd grown up, you know that story, um, to be almost in command of the kingdom. And there was famine in Canaan. And for self-preservation, the family of Jacob, they went down um, to live in Egypt. But they grew in number, and as they grew in number, the Egyptians oppressed them and uh, were afraid of them and enslaved them. And the Lord rescued them through the sacrificial exodus lamb, the blood of the lamb painted on the doorposts, yes, of their, of their houses, and an opening made through the sea that closed back over the Egyptian army. So the people of Israel, this was a relationship for them that started with a need. They needed to be, to be rescued. They were in a captivity that they could not break. Can you imagine being born? What would it be like to be a child born into Israel at that point in time? You, you're born into captivity. You grow up in captivity. You grow up to make bricks. You grow up to, to work hard. Nothing to look forward in your life other than to working hard and making bricks until the day you die. They, they're, they're in captivity. God hears their cry, looks on them with love, and, and, he, and he rescues them. They have a need. They cry out. The Lord looks on them with love and rescues. And we're not that dissimilar. Because when you were born, you were dropped into a world of captivity, possibly without ever realizing it. Because our purpose are, in this world is to love God with all our hearts, all our mind, all our strength, and to love our neighbors um, as ourselves. But we find we're dropped into captivity. We're, we're captive to addictive God-avoiding and to compulsive self-serving. We're dropped into this bondage. We're absolutely bound to self-lordship and self-protection. So the people of Israel, they were, they were, they were born into a physical national captivity and they were uh, released into a new relationship with the Lord through the rescue and then defined by the Lord Moses. You and I, we were born into a, a behavioral captivity into a standard of behavior that we couldn't achieve. A slavery to sin, slavery to our own natures, which refuse to love God wholeheartedly and love others sacrificially. And God, I trust, heard your cry. I trust there was a time when you cried out to the Lord 
You said, Lord, I'm in captivity. I can't do this. I can't get right with you, and I know that I'm not right with you. Please rescue me out of this, out of this bondage. And God released you. And he did that by sending someone else to obey in your place, somebody to come and love the Lord with all his heart and love his neighbor as himself, which was Jesus. Somebody to come and do your obedience for you. Somebody who also will die to, to cancel out your debt of obedience. Cancel your behavioral debt. And do a third thing, which is send the Holy Spirit of God to come and live within you so you can start to be practically obedient and you would want to do it from the heart. So rules enable relationships. Like Israel, we're in a relationship where we've been rescued. We're in a relationship which has been sovereignly given by God and we're in a relationship uh, as subjects to a, a great loving God and King. But the heading is different. This is the point. In Exodus, the heading is this. The Lord says, I've rescued you from slavery. I've formed you into a nation. Now love me and keep my commands. And here's the start of a 10. And to you and I, he says, I've rescued you from behavioral captivity to sin, to self-servingness. I've formed you into a new family and kingdom. Now love me and keep in step with my spirit who is going to change your heart so you will want to follow my law and who will empower you to be able to do it. Do you see the difference? This preface, this little bit before the first command is different. Because on its own, the law can't and it won't empower you. The Holy Spirit can and he will. And your job is to keep in step. Once you've got the preface right, then the rules enable the relationship. Without the Holy Spirit, the rules will just kill you off. Just convince you you're a dirty, rotten sinner. So once we've got the preface right, then we can go to the first command. And God says this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land to slavery. Literally, he says, you shall have no other God before my face. It's the next slide. Why does he say that? Why does he say you shall have, you shall have no other gods before me? Why does he say that? Because there only is one true, real God. So Jen Walking calls this an invitation into reality. There's no restriction on here. They should have no other gods before him. It's just an invitation to, to look at the world and look at the, the universe as it really is. There only is one God. He says himself in Isaiah, I am the Lord and there is no other. I am the Lord. Hear this. And there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. That is what your God says to you this morning. I am the Lord. There is no other. 
Apart from me, there is no God. Well, David says it in the Psalms. He says, all the nations you've made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. You alone are God. And so it's not surprising then that when Jesus comes and makes the claim that he is a son of God, that he is God the Son incarnate, that he makes the same call for exclusivity. And he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you know my Father as well. In other words, he says, I am God. I am one with the Father. If you've seen me, um, you have seen the Father, and therefore I am. I am, it's obviously the name of God in the Old Testament. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes except through me. So this first command clearly says you can't believe in one true God and in multitudes of other gods. So you might get people, for example, in Hinduism who say, yes, I believe all these gods, very happy to have Jesus as well. You can't do that. Christianity doesn't allow it. Jesus doesn't allow it. The Lord does not allow it. There is only one true God. And you cannot have another God. So you can understand from this that God, Yahweh, call him the Lord, is the, is, is the true God. So he cannot be true and some of these other names of God be true as well. So you cannot come to the Lord through Islam or Mormonism or through JWs or even through Judaism. Because although they see the right God by the right name, they come by the wrong way. You might find this morning that's amazingly restrictive, that's amazingly presumptive of the Lord, but you would be a fool to think that. This is profoundly good news. Profoundly good news because our God is the only God who doesn't say, you've got to make it on your own. You've got to make it by your good behavior. I will judge you by your independently exercised will our God is the only God who says I will do it for you I will do it for you and credit it to you so the fact that the God of Jesus Christ is the only true God is is a profoundly good news for us because all the other gods say make it on your own so the Lord demands exclusivity He asks to be, he is the only true God. He asks to be the only God, the only God in your life. So we're ruling out other religions. We're ruling out Christianity and another religion. I, I, I doubt that you are practicing, you know, Christianity and another religion in the background. It's not impossible. But other things in religion can function as gods. Things, do you get that? Things other than religion can function as gods in your life. So it might be that your God is human approval. You desperately want to look right before other people. Fear of man, Proverbs says, will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. It might be comfort. It might be kicks. You want the good life. You want excitement. You want a particular kind of thrill. 
or you just want to be free from pain. Mark this, Paul says, in the last days, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They'll have a form of godliness, but they'll deny its power. That comes really close to home, doesn't it? It goes on to say, have nothing to do with such people. Or you want power, prestige. But even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. Or you want control. Just things are, are out, of you, out of your control and you, you want to. You want to be on top of everything. Proverbs again, in, in, the, in their hearts, humans plan their course. But the Lord establishes their steps. How do you tell whether you've got another God in your life? That's, this is the important bit. I've got three questions. What do you dream about? Okay? This is not a difficult thing to do. Um, just stop when you're sitting, you know, sitting at the end of the day having a glass of something and, and staring blankly outside the window or, or you're sitting in the garden. Um, where does your mind go? What are, you, what are you dreaming about? You're dreaming about approval? You imagine yourself, you know, kind of like on some big stage and playing the guitar. I wasn't thinking of you when I wrote this, I'm honest. It was just, um, you know, in front of a massive crowd and they're all going, Nick, 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 you know. Or do you think, or are you dreaming of a stack of um, A-level A-stars? Whatever it might be. So what do you dream about? It's a really telling thing. And it's not too hard to do. You just stop, catch yourself at those moments when you realise your mind's gone a bit blank. You're in the middle of work and your mind's gone off somewhere else. Just ask the question, where did it go? Comfort. Whatever is the next thing you're dreaming about your next holiday. The next bar of chocolate. The new car. These things are not wrong, but they can become gods. Any relationship that you are fantasising um, about, real or unreal. Or power. You're dreaming of swapping places with your boss or putting your mother-in-law in their place or your father-in-law, just to make sure equal. Or control. You're dreaming about having enough money that you can stop working. Or you could have a, you just dream of having a private income and everything would be under control. So with dreams, you just have to spot them and make sure they're not acting as a god in your life. Just be honest, and I think this is the test. Anything that you can't bring before the Lord and ask for in faith is probably inappropriate. So you can come to the Lord and say, can I, Lord, I'd love to have a really decent holiday next year. Please, can you help me? You can bring that to the Lord in faith. Please, Lord, can I have a relationship with my neighbor's wife? No. So I think that's one of the tests. Is if, if you can bring it humbly and open-handedly to the Lord and ask for it in faith, then it's a good thing and you're holding it in its right place. If you can't do that, it's probably wrong. But if you can't decide then, then you just ask God to prompt you by his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is living within you, strengthening your conscience. 
Just ask the Lord. Second question, what, is, what do you worry about? This shows where your gods are. Uh, Tim Keller writes this. He says, the greatest nightmare of the approval addict is rejection. Greatest nightmare of the comfort addict is suffering or pain. Greatest nightmare of the power addict is humiliation. And the greatest nightmare of the control addict is uncertainty. Are any of those things playing in your life? Have any of them got to the level of being a, a God that you feel like you've got to get them? Come what may. Or the third question, what do you find compulsive? What do you find compulsive? Which behaviours do you think, I can't stop doing this? When a behaviour is compulsive, this is a really helpful thing I read many years ago. Um, which I paraphrase like this, behaviours are compulsive to the extent that the underlying motive is not understood. Did you get that? Behaviours are compulsive to the extent that the underlying motive is not understood. So the things that you find you can't break is because you haven't worked out yet what the underlying motive is. Somewhere under this thing that you can't stop doing is, is a god. Is a God. Might be the God of sexual fulfillment or sexual thrill, and you just can't give it up. Or it's a comfort thing, and um, you just can't give up having one drink too many because you just want to numb, numb the anxiety. You've got to work out whether behaviors are compulsive. What is the God that you're serving um, underneath? And what you will find then is that you want that thing more than the Lord find that you can't bring yourself to trust the Lord for this thing. And that whatever that thing is, it's become a God in your life. And so actually, the, the Lord's done a great thing in, the, in this rescue for Israel, going back to Israel, is that he's killed off the other gods. He's made a really good start for them in killing off the other gods. So if they're going to be exclusive, have God, uh, God, the Lord, Yahweh, exclusively, then the other gods have to, be, have to be put in their place and they have to be killed off. Well, the Lord has done that for Israel. They've, um, that's why it takes 10 plagues before Pharaoh lets them go. Each of those plagues is a, is a defeat of one of the gods of Egypt. I haven't got time to go to them in detail. But each time uh, there's a plague, one of the gods of Egypt, the sun, the Nile, the frog god, the gods then of fertility and harvest and sun and, and protection for Egypt were, were, were all defeated, in part so that Israel would know that their God is the Lord. He is the only true God. He is the God above all gods. And so we have to do, we have to kill off our own gods. Paul puts it like this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it's not to the flesh to live according to it. Because if you live according to the flesh, in other words, what your bodily desires want to do, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit, you've got to put these things, you've got to kill them. 
God to kill them. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. That's the mark of children of God, no. That they're led by the Spirit of God. Are you practically, in an everyday reality, led by the, by the Spirit of God? The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you fear again. It's not a fear relationship. It's not a threat, fear, punishment, obedience relationship. The Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. We know what our relationship is. It's a father-son, father-daughter relationship. Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. But you're going to put to death those gods. You cannot bring them before his face. You have no other gods before his faith. When you do these things, I think it probably helps. If there's something you, you're struggling with, just, just realize that his, that his face is, is always looking. His eye is always on you. And how could you? I say how could you, and yet I know that we do. How could you bring this other God before his face? So we are to cooperate with the Holy Spirit as he leads us and guides us to kill off the other gods. The Holy Spirit is doing all these things for us. He is leading us. And he uses the Bible as his compass. In a sense, he says, you read it. He goes, yeah, that way. He's encouraging us. Holy Spirit is speaking to us that we're children of God. And he's using those very words, those words from Romans, as his arms of love. So that you know the arms of God wrapped around you as, as, a, as a father. Holy Spirit of God is writing the law of God into our hearts. Using the Bible as his textbook. Hey Nick, read this. And as I read and put it into practice, he writes it in my heart. He's cutting us to the heart. In other words, he's convicting us of sin and he's using the Bible as his scalpel, a double-edged sword. Can you see, Nick? No, this looks really fine, but this thing, you have to cut it off. This is okay, this is not okay. It makes the fine judgments in your life. But he's also using the Bible as his power cable. It's through this he says, Nick, put this to death. And by the very act of reading it, the Holy Spirit goes to work in empowering me to do it. That's why we were a word and spirit church. It's not a, it's not a balance, as if there's kind of like you could be a, a word church over here. Um, or you could be a spirit church over here. You have to be both. Because this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. This is what he's using. Without the Spirit, there is... We're back to law, aren't we? We're back to the unaided Ten Commandments. Without the Word, we're Spirit, but we're just without definition. We're Word and Spirit, Church, because the Spirit works upon the Word, and that it is His primary means to you. So keep coming to it. Keep reading it. Let Him speak. Let Him direct you. Let Him wrap His arms around you, the Father's arms. Let him teach you 
Let him cut you to the heart. Let him empower you to do something different. So just to wrap up, rules define relationships. That's, I think it's easy enough to see. We're rescued by the one true God. Rules enable relationships. It's true for all kinds of relationships, but it's only true for a relationship God when it's prefaced by, I am the Lord your God, who's rescued you from slavery to sin by the death of my son on the cross and have filled you with my Holy Spirit. And then when that's true, the rules enable the relationship and they fall into place. So I'm going to pray, and I'm just going to pray based on this last verse, and then we'll sing. Father, I pray for any who are in doubt this morning whether they've been rescued from slavery to sin by the death of Christ on the cross. And I ask you to be really gracious to those people now and just make it really clear where they stand and what they need to do. Just need to turn trust you, put their trust in you. We pray you will fill us afresh by your spirit. We confess where we've been. Maybe interested in your word, but not in your spirit. We've read it academically. Confess if we've been interested in your spirit and an emotion and have not been prepared to be informed by your word. And we ask you, please send your spirit to work on our hearts by your word. To make us people who want to live you and love you and glorify you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.